Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, hosted by Josh Abatoy and Tymon Klein. Our mission is to promote a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Welcome back to the American Reformer Podcast. Uh, this is Tymon Klein, Editor-in-Chief, uh, with my usual partner in crime, Josh Abatoy, Executive Director. And we have a special guest with us today on the pod, so you don't have to listen to us just riff about whatever it is that comes to mind to me for me and Josh. We have Johnny Burka, who is the president of ISI, and he can tell us a little bit, bit more about what ISI does and, and when it started, for those of you that don't know. But many of you will be familiar both with ISI and with uh, Johnny himself, who was at American Conservative for a long time before he went to um, ISI. Some of you may have even um, done events or fellowships, internships with ISI yourself. So, Johnny, thanks for coming on, though. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So tell us a, a little bit more about yourself, just for to orient the listeners, and then as well as ISI and some of the th- the initiatives you guys run, um, some of the some of the work you do. Absolutely. So I grew up in rural South Central Michigan. I went to Hillsdale College, where I studied uh, Christian Studies and French, and then I went off to seminary at the Faculté Jean Calvin in Aix-en-Provence, France. Uh, I was there for a year, uh, working on a, an MDiv equivalent. And then after that, uh, came to the United States, uh, did some programs at the Trinity Forum, and then became Eastern Orthodox through an in- interesting series of events, and ended up working for ISI in 2014, focusing on development, and then went over to the American Conservative, where I was the executive director and acting editor. And in the last three and a half years, I've been president of ISI. So ISI really was, it was founded in 1953 by William F. Buckley Jr. And the mission of ISI is to give students the education they're not getting in the classroom in Western civilization and foundational understanding of America and its history. So we start in Jerusalem and go all the way throughout the West, through Athens, Rome, London, uh, culminating in Philadelphia. And we're focused not only on that educational component uh, by hosting over 150 events, lectures, seminars, and debates on campuses uh, around the country, but we also are really uh, intent on building a countercultural leadership network of young people uh, to uh, replace our failed elite class in America. So our students go on to to marry each other and have have kids and sort of build out the network that way. But they're also founding companies. They're serving in presidential administrations. They're you know running for Congress. Uh, so we're really focused on building up that leadership network that this country needs. Excellent. And just to be clear, marrying each other is not a requirement of of being involved with that side. But it's just a, it happens, a happy. It happens. Yes. From okay. Time to time. Yeah. Very good. And, and you guys also. Um, this was something Josh had, had mentioned before we we started. You you've started a new um, sort of political science, you know, political theory conference. Um, I don't know if last year was the the first one. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's something new also that's kind of uh, created a buzz and a, and I heard good things about. Yeah, absolutely. So we launched the American Politics in Government Summit. So we currently have about 3,000 affiliated faculty members on campuses around the country. So this is an opportunity to 
uh, both have, you know, professors prevent, present uh, new research uh, to, you know, get published both in terms of books and articles. Uh, it's an alternative to the American political science, uh, to APSA, uh, the American Political Science mm -hmm. Association. This year, the conference will be in November. That'll be at ISI's headquarters. Um, so you can look, look for that on our website. The theme will be the golden thread, uh, a history of Western civilization. And we have James Hankins, uh, from Harvard university and Alan Galza, who will be co-chairing the conference. Mm. Excellent. Let's, let's, uh, um, and thank you for that summary. I, I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by ISI undertaking that work and, and a huge fan, um, I think in a lot of ways, ISI is in this respect a little bit on the vanguard in its ability to create um, sort of an alternative uh, faculty guild for a specific discipline. I think this is something that probably needs to happen uh, for a lot of other disciplines. I mean, imagine, um, you know, sociology, psychology, there's, there's certain disciplines in the modern academy that are so ideologically captured. Um, I think there's a lot of hunger and, and, isolated faculty members out there who uh, would love uh, comparable opportunities in their own disciplines. But kudos to ISI on on kind of uh, being an, a, an early mover on this front. And, uh, you know, I hope to, hope uh, hope other people follow ISI's example on that. Thank you. And yeah, I think there's actually a big opportunity, especially with states like, you know, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, Tennessee, hiring, um, you know, professors that are more independent minded or right of center. And so a part of what this conference hopes to do is also to be a career pipeline for um, job opportunities for credentialed professors. And we're, we're going to be focusing a lot on that uh, at this particular conference. Yeah, that's excellent. I mean, I, rem I remember reading the uh, I wasn't able to go last year because the uh, I had a baby on the way, but the um, it looked excellent. I mean, the the panels you had lined up were all good personnel. The topics were interesting. You know, it's what you want. It looked like what you want a conference to be, not just the boring, you know, kind of same old, same old, but trying to engage uh, exciting scholarship, exciting scholars and, you know, bring everybody together for those kind of networks. So I think that's it's excellent. Um, but what we so. We, of course, do always want to talk about ISI because we think it does great things, but we really want to talk about Johnny's book is why we had him on today. I saw this book. Um, it had to be through Twitter that I saw the announcement that it was coming out, making the rounds, and I said, I've, I've got to get a review copy of this. I mean, I've got to have Johnny on because, uh, one, it's got, a great, it's got a great list of endorsements. Anytime both Larry Arn and Tucker Carlson tell me to do something, I'm going to do it, and they both say you should read this book. Um, but it's, it was really the subject matter that caught my attention. It's called Gateway to Statesmanship Selections from Xenophon to Churchill, and it's a, a compendium or selection of, of uh, a certain genre of literature that's pretty much fallen by the wayside, if not completely extinct at this point. Um, and Johnny edited uh, some of those selections and then provides a very nice introduction. Um, but this is why I was excited to see it, because you're engaging this sort of uh, mirrors to princess literature. So tell us a little bit about um, why you decided to take on this project, because it seems uh, fairly substantial to go through and select texts and edit them and then, you know, try to pull them all together for people. But tell us, you know, why you wanted to do it and what the, what the point of it is, I guess, some sure. people may be asking. Well, there's a lot of complaining in America about our political leaders generally, uh, their, their incompetence and dissatisfaction with them. But one irony is that um, if you look at uh, business and entrepreneurship in America, 
we publish, you know, hundreds of books every year uh, advising, you know, here, here's the type of conduct that, you know, you need as an entrepreneur if you want to become the next Steve Jobs, right? These make the New York Times bestseller list. We have a whole cottage industry around that for entrepreneurs, but nothing comparable exists for statesmen. And so this book is trying to fill that gap, but it's also saying, hey, we're, we're not reinventing the wheel. There's actually a tradition uh, that goes back all the way to antiquity that exists in literally every civilization. Uh, these texts were basically conduct manuals for political leaders, taking the first principles and connecting them really to lifestyle advice that a political leader could implement on a day-to-day -day basis to become better uh, as a leader. And so what I did is compile, you know, to my knowledge, really the first collection of these texts put together since the Renaissance, and I'm trying to uh, revive the genre for a new era. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So tell us, I mean, just to give people a flavor of, uh, of you know, who's in there, we'll just start with the, the authors you chose. Uh, you know, what's, what was your favorite one from, kind of, you, you periodize it, right? You have, mm -hmm. um, you know, antiquity, you have, uh, you know, the Renaissance, modernity is, is last course, med medieval period is in there. So what was your, you know, kind of favorite ones out of, you know, not necessarily each period, but um, that give people a, a representation of who you included? Definitely. Yeah. Just a, a few that really stand out. The, the one that I think everyone needs to read is Xenophon's The Education of Cyrus. Uh, this was a text that uh, Julius Caesar said he never left for battle without scrolls of Xenophon's The Education with him so he could read it on the road. Uh, Thomas Jefferson actually had a couple copies of it uh, in his library at Monticello. So it basically tells the story of uh, the education of a young boy, Cyrus the Great, uh, in Persia, uh, in, in what I would describe as a fairly Spartan-like uh, environment, you know, a big focus on, on restraint, on sort of uh, keeping the passions in check, hard labor, uh, really, um, you know, re really a focus on kind of strength and discipline from a young age. And then it tells the story of how he essentially conquered from Persia all the way to Greece, and uh, how he led uh, his soldiers throughout that period and what tactics he used to uh, keep the men loyal to them to himself, keep them disciplined. And then uh, after he conquered, um, what it took to essentially rule uh, this territory, which was a slightly different approach than what he used when he was on the military campaigns. And then he ends up dying, like all humans do at the end, and, and passing this on to his sons. And they screw it all up and the whole kingdom, you know, educational standards decline, the whole kingdom falls to ruin. And so it, there's a lot of questions to be explored, both about leadership, but also about the nature of regimes and whether you should mm. put your hope more on building institutions or you should pin your hopes to a great leader. Um, so that, that I think is, is just mandatory reading. As you then kind of look throughout the, the tradition, the, um, I included an ancient Chinese and an Indian text, uh, which were pretty for, you know, formative. Uh, and I think you can even see, looking at China and in, in India today, some aspects of, of these qualities, uh, which I thought were fun to read. And, and I don't think people will have ever encountered uh, Han Fei in China or Katilia in ancient India. And then as we make our way to the modern era, so most, most, people consider that this genre sort of ended with the Renaissance. So I have Machiavelli, Thomas More, and Erasmus. But then what I did was add a few additional texts that I thought could bring this up to the present day. So there's one that I think 
everyone should try to get their hands on. I have a, a selection in my book. It's Charles de Gaulle's The Edge of the Sword. And so he was in his early 30s when he wrote this. Basically, he hadn't really accomplished anything in his life. He was a prisoner of war during <laughs> World War I, but mostly he just smoked a lot of cigarettes, drank coffee, and read, read old books while he was held captive. It wasn't really you know, that crazy of a, a time. So he, coming out of this, he writes this portrait. It's very short, and he's drawing from uh, Aristotle's portrait of the, magna, of the magnanimous man and the ethics. And he, there's a chapter on character and a chapter on prestige. And he describes the qualities, uh, leadership qualities that he believes are in an ideal leader. And then he devotes the rest of his life to becoming the man that he describes on those pages. He defends mm -hmm. um, France, you know, during the Nazi invasion. He founds the Fifth French Republic. And then he serves as president for 10 years and ushers in really a paradigm shift in French governance. Uh, and it's it's just a remarkable story of someone who's very ambitious. They wrote out the qualities that they wanted to embody, and then they devoted the rest of their life to becoming them. And so I think, you know, I, I really hope that um, this is the beginning of, of, you know, future Charles de Gaulle's in our own context, really aspiring to greatness and then drawing inspiration from these classic texts. Yeah, something that, that uh, I think will come to mind or maybe shock a lot of people um even though it shouldn't in in a lot of this literature is that um ambition's not bad you know in in these texts right it's actually a a good thing it's a virtuous thing if it's if it's rightly ordered um you know the the drive to to accomplish great things especially if it's on behalf of those that have you know god's put under you and uh the taking advantage of the opportunities providence presents so on and so forth um you know that that may not be so i think in in our context uh someone who who exhibits a, a, you know too much ambition is usually suspect especially if it's in politics mm -hmm. um but there's there's also you know something that may surprise people is the the kind of cartoon version because most of these texts are to monarchs right and and even and monarchs that that exist under a predominant sort of divine right theory so usually um you know, minimal selection process other than, uh, you know, sort of the ISI selection process, people married and then, you know, they go forth and conquer. Um, but they, the, the point is most people have a cartoonish view of monarchs as sort of, you know, the off with his head kind of freedom to do whatever you want, mm -hmm. a really cushy lifestyle, probably somewhat neurotic person. But most of these texts expect, um, as you described as sort of um, Spartan discipline and even existence as part of their training. There's a lot of pressure on them both to be pious and to exemplify the virtues for the people uh, that they should have. And, um, you know, it's it's really not a cushy job and there's lots of difficult considerations. Um, so talk to us about, you know, some of those themes, uh, other ones yeah. that you think may also surprise people in these texts. Um, yeah. So I think one of the things that surprised me is I think when you think of a monarch kind of historically understood, you there, there's an assumption today that, okay, a monarch was just a dictator of a very statist mm -hmm. uh, regime, you know, comparable to mm -hmm. I don't know, North Korea or China today. And, you mm -hmm. know, there, there may be cases, there are probably certainly cases that were more comparable to that. But the monarchs that, you know, you encounter when you go through this genre were encumbered with many, many constraints. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they often ruled over, you know, highly decentralized uh, kingdoms. Mm -hmm. 
where they were dependent on many, you know, sort of various local authorities, local lords who were often very difficult to kind of get into line. Um, they had pressure from the church. They had uh, pressure from the military. They had, um, you know, various, you know, laws and customs that that hemmed them in. And so, you know, while, while it's true that in some sense, their ultimate accountability was to their own conscience and to God, uh, because they were the sovereign, uh, there's another sense in which they were, you know, constrained by numerous obligations and, and other realities that really limited the ability, their political power uh, in many real ways. Um, but, you know, the second thing is, is if you, you know, turning to Erasmus, uh, you know, he basically says the, the entire hope of getting a good prince hinges on their education. And so his, mm -hmm. his uh, letter that I've included is, is the education of a Christian prince. And he was writing to the young um, uh, Prince Charles, who would become uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, his whole focus was you got to got to get them while you're, you're, they're young and really give them more of a classical liberal arts education. And for him, uh, Cicero was actually very formative. Who's another author that's included in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I always say it's um, contrary to popular belief. It's much easier to be a localist and even an individual individualist in a medieval monarchy. You're basically left alone, right? Everything's so sporadic and kind of decentralized in many of those societies. It's harder to be, to be one in a Republic. The demands of being in a Republic are, are much greater on the, the individual citizen. Um, but people usually think of that backwards. But so these, it wasn't a cakewalk for these, uh, for most of these guys that are the subjects of the text, or at least who it's addressed to. Um, and, and that, that should be obvious as people read these, you know, kind of what, what the virtues, um, that are demanded of them and then the, the things they have to navigate. But the, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you too about the selection process of how you decided which, which texts to include. Maybe there were some that you excluded, or maybe this is, uh, you know, basically the, the best representatives of the genre. Um, because there's there's many texts, especially in late medieval, early modern period, that are like addressed to a monarch, right? Mm -hmm. Like all the Protestant confessions, most of them are addressed to a monarch. Uh, you could have included like all of Calvin's Institutes because sure. it's addressed to the King of France. That doesn't make it fit the genre necessarily. So how did you go about you know picking what you what you thought was best in in your selection? Yeah, so I really just set out to give a broad survey. Um, that included, you know, most of the the major civilizations who, you know, to some extent kind of play a role today. Um, and so, you know, I, I there, there are, like you said, there's many more that I could have included, especially as you get to the Renaissance or just inching towards the more, you know, modernity. Uh, there's also a lot of courtly literature, you know, advice for courtesans and things like that, mm -hmm. that didn't, didn't end up making the cut. So I, my, my goal was really to uh, bring sort of the most famous and popular texts uh, to the fore. I mean, some of these were literally so, so famous. I mean, like, like Cicero's um, on duties, you know, by the time you get to Thomas More, he, he never leaves the house without a copy of Cicero's on duties mm -hmm. in his breast pocket. You know, this text influenced early church fathers. I mean, it's, it's one of the most popular texts for 1500 years. There's others that were more obscure, but were also, you know, equally popular. Agapetus's letters to Justinian the Great. Uh, this was the, mm -hmm. the widest read and circulated Greek text in the Latin West, also for 1500 years. So some of these are just classics that I wanted to recover, 
But also, mm-hmm. you know, I was hoping by, you know, by including a, you know, an Islamic text, uh, Al-Faribi's aphorisms of a statesman, um, a Chinese text, an Indian text, that as we think about, um, and, and it's not to say that these these texts are representative of everything that China or India or the Islamic world thinks about political leadership today, but it, it certainly does give you a window into their frame of mind. I think as, as, as you look at our foreign policy kind of leadership at the State Department today, um, mm-hmm. you know, they really approach a lot of foreign policy foreign policy problems as though they were McKinsey consultants, you know, they're given a problem <laughs> set and let's just kind of, they're, they're working it out. Like they're, you know, it's like an exercise in business school and, and often they're, they're totally ignorant of religion first and foremost, but also, yeah. um, politics and just the history and nature of politics in these various regimes. And I think they just, they just assume that, you know, they can work it out again, like it's a business problem. Yeah. Um, and so I'm hoping to kind of, uh, give people the sense of the, the civilizational identities of these various regions of the country. So as we approach statecraft today, we can actually think a little more deeply about our problem. I, I want to, yeah, I can't remember click. who said it. I, oh, I, go ahead, Josh. Right, I, I got to double click on something Johnny just said regarding Trump's yeah, foreign yeah. policy. I think it's spot on. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a sort of human excellence or virtue in being able to read body language and leverage and things like that. Um, you might call it, you know, the, the ability to play poker well, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to, it, it's not, it's not the kind of thing you can learn in school at all. It's just this, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a human quality, you know, maybe to some degree inborn to some degree practiced, but, um, you know, the, the, that, that comment is spot on. And I think it's somewhat simpatico as well with this, this um, modern skepticism about the possibility of a great man, a man who can change history because mm-hmm. of his exceptional qualities. Um, you know, the, the modern person tends to be skeptical of that and want to, you know, interpret what happens in the world and in history as the result of sort of structural dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think Trump and his ability to craft an excellent foreign policy despite you know relative um ignorance of what they say about it at the kennedy school uh, is a great example of that absolutely um yeah i think people are uncomfortable there, there's there's a one reason in particular for this that i'll mention but people are uncomfortable with the idea of a you know a great leader uh with the, the hand his hand on the rudder of the ship of state you know using the classical virtues prudence to navigate it, you know, the ship through stormy, unpredictable waters, charting crazy winds. I mean, it's there, there was a shift at the beginning of the progressive era away from statesmanship towards management, expertise, you know, through these various techniques and bureaucracy, we can kind of smooth out the rough edges of human nature. And this, this is much safer, more comfortable way of controlling politics. Um, and yeah, I love that history has made a a resurgence. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you're right about Trump's foreign policy. He was, he was, th- yeah, there was an, a, an aspect of instinct to it. I think there, there was a mix of, uh, you know, he was feared. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, even Machiavelli says it's not, you know, you should be feared and loved if you can be both, but if you can only pick one, it's better to be feared. And I do think there's a, a sense in which Putin probably would not have invaded Ukraine if Trump was president. Because there was this this aspect of, you know, what's even been described as this madman theory of diplomacy. Like, you just don't know what he might do. So you're going to kind of keep keep things in check. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I remember the er, early on in his first term, the uh, the reports coming out that he was just asking a lot of questions about like nukes in some meeting, and it was all anecdotal. And I think that just set the stage. After that came out, it was like he asked like twenty times in one meeting of this with state, like, "What about the you know where are the nukes kept?" And people were like, "Okay, he's <laughs> just we don't know what this guy's capable of." Um, but you mentioned that, I mean, that may surprise people, especially uh, Christians that are, have been conditioned a certain way. They probably haven't read it themselves, but that, you know, Machiavellianism is usually a pejorative, um, but there he is included in this, in this, you know, list of great advice to statesmen. Um, I think rightly so, but, but talk to us about, you know, Machiavelli's sort of realist approach sure. and it's, uh, you know, usefulness, even, uh, uh, today, of course, uh, but also, you know, mm-hmm. shouldn't freak Christians out um, as much as it might some. Yeah. So I would say a couple of things about Machiavelli. I mean, this is one of the texts that I really, really enjoyed and learned a lot from. Um, I think a few things. I mean, th- there's no question that uh, some of the advice he gives is that is is legitimately evil. Right. And it, it should kind of shock the conscience of a Christian. But I think there's a couple ways that you need to approach it. First, you have to understand that if you are in politics at any level, but especially at the highest levels, uh, you know, Machiavelli, Machiavelli describes how people will act towards you. They will act in these mm-hmm. ways. And so if you're totally ignorant of Machiavelli and his approach to real politic, you are going to be blindsided because of your naivete about how human beings and mm-hmm. act on the world stage. So you have to read it and understand it if only to know how your uh, political opponents and enemies are going to be acting towards you in order to, to mm-hmm. mount a defense or mount an offensive strategy. Mm-hmm. That, that's the first thing. Um, let's see, what, what else? There's a, there's a few other aspects of Machiavelli um, that I find, yeah, that, that I find commanding. I mean, one is really his advice um, when it comes to fortune. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think that even in a democratic society, we like to think that we pick our political leaders. But what you see throughout the Mirrors for Princes tradition is that great leaders are emergent, right? And it's an intersection of virtue and fortune, or, or as we would think as Christians, providence that, that come together. You think of George Washington, if he was born 10 years earlier or 10 years later, we probably wouldn't know his name. You know, America might not exist the way it does today. And so uh, Machiavelli talks a lot about how do you harness the, this unpredictable power of fortune or providence sort of uh, um, in, in, at the very end of the book, he talks about um, how f- when fortune wants to make a prince great, she pulls obstacles in his path. She brings enemies before him in order that the prince might overcome them and might climb them sort of as though it were a ladder to greatness. So I think you have a, a hmm. there's actually a very practical nugget of advice there, which is every week in our life, there's at least going to be one thing that goes wrong, right? And oftentimes it's outside of our control. And I think as leaders, we like to think of our job as just simply, you know, we've got a big to-do list because we're important people. We just need to keep checking things off of our to-do list. But really the real test of leadership is checking things off of your to-do list while these obstacles are thrown at you. And instead of seeing them as sources of frustration or annoyance or grievance, you really should be hungering for those obstacles because those overcoming them and doing it in a way that you're composed, that you're not causing extra stress or anxiety for your fellow employees or team members is actually really important into making you 
a great leader. So I, I just think there are these nuggets mm -hmm. of wisdom that Machiavelli has where he just really understands the nature of how political leadership works in the real world. And you should, I think, take the, take the good advice and also be wary of how other people will use his evil advice against you. <laughs> Josh, anything to add on Machiavelli? <laughs> no, but um, Johnny just inspired me um, that, you know, for, um, for American reformer team meetings, perhaps, you know, we should start <laughs> readings. Um, I do. Yeah. I do listen to Machiavelli on audible once a year, always. So yeah. just, so I'm, just so I'm prepared. I would also for American reformer add, team like, meetings. Cause he, one thing that I, another aspect of Machiavelli is that appearances do matter yeah. a lot, you know, and he's so, you know, People read this as a, it's a, a bad advice in the sense of he, he urges the prince to act pious, right, in, in, mm -hmm. in public, even if personally they might not quite truly believe everything. Because he says, look, especially when you're in public life, you know, everyone perceives who you are from a distance, and that's how they form their impressions of you. But few actually get close enough to you to really know who you are at the core. And so, Obviously, I think people should be sincerely Christians and sincerely good people, but I do think it's important to understand, and this goes out throughout the whole genre all the way to Cyrus, like appearances actually do matter a lot, even though they're superficial. And this is why Cyrus, you know, he, he, wore, he wore platform shoes. He put on a lot of makeup. When, <laughs> and when he went out to process through the streets, he had his own people fall down prostrate. And then the whole crowd would fall down prostrate. Like he paid a lot of attention to these external things, which you might think are vanity, but really do shape the public image. Because um, that's, as a leader, a lot of times all you have is your public image. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean. And it can be done poorly. Plat we've seen platform boots do poorly <laughs> recently. DeSantis, you, know, the high <laughs> you have to, you have to yeah. do it with, with style. Yeah, and if you get caught, you at least need to have a, a sense of humor about it. Mm-hmm. He wasn't esoteric enough. Um, I think that was. That's right. Letter. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the question of Machiavelli is, is very interesting. Um, you know, I think that clearly some of his advice, uh, if, if you, if you, um, if you're bound by Christian ethics, some of his advice is just taken off the table, right? Uh, in terms of how a person can act, even in a true state of nature, there's certain things that he might advise that would, would, I, I think a Christian would have to say, we can never do that. Um, but I think that the the uh, valence of, of a lot of Machiavelli's insights are, are increasing in our current political situation where, you know, the, the constitutional system has increasing uh, difficulty managing uh, conflict and political disagreement. Um, so, you know, if 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 you view the world, I, I think the right way, which is that um, increasingly American politics is coming closer to something like a state of nature, um, then mm -hmm. I think you know, a lot of Machiavelli's um, descriptive analysis is is very important. It's a gear that, that we will probably increasingly need to learn unless our politics um, change for the better mm -hmm. in some unexpected way. No, that's a, that's a really good point. And I, and I think building on that, there's also a question of whether ethic, ethics are different. Well, there, there's sort of a different mm -hmm. lens or dimension of ethics for a public leader as opposed to a private individual. And I, I, yeah. I, again, I don't want to speak on behalf of Christianity or orthodoxy because I, I could be wrong on this, but my, you know, suspicion is that there are, there are certain ways in which you might have to defend the honor, right, of your people, of your nation, 
or, you know, make har- very hard decisions, trade-offs that might have, you know, very real impact on people that you would do as a public leader, but you would not do as a private indiv- individual if someone wronged you. So I, and I think people really just don't understand that there are these different dimensions to some of these ethical questions. Yeah, I think, I mean, this, and this goes, I think that's right to say that's representative or, or pretty a, a consensus view within the tradition. Uh, in my experience, I mean, even Josh, this is predictable to Josh, but Richard Baxter and his Holy Commonwealth, he deals with this question at length of whether the church can publicly discipline the monarch. Hmm. Um, and he says basically no, because hmm. it would diminish his honor, and that's bad for the Commonwealth. Interesting. So you have to do it privately, and he uses scriptural examples for how you know, to, to do this, but he says it, it would, it would inhibit his ability to rule, hmm. um, if you embarrass him in public that way. So it is a totally different, you know, ethical consideration when you have all these, these things under his purview and his responsibilities are in view. Um, so that's even for the, you know, the direct, the church's attitude towards, sure. towards them, much less his own towards, you know, the, the, uh, nitty gritty kind of political life he has to deal with. So I think it's fair to say, you you know, most of us thankfully don't have to consider things that way, um, but it is a pretty brutal world. And these, these texts are, are cognizant of that, I think, in their ethical analysis. They are. And, and I would say even to the extent they also sort of in a very anarchic world um, in, as you get closer to a state of nature, you know, the chief goal of a, an effective political ru- ruler is to maintain order first. And, and I, I mm-hmm. think you could even see order as a precondition for justice, um, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, anarchy is, is the worst of all. Right. It's better to have an unjust mm-hmm. order than it is to have anarchy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's and it's I mean, it used to be the the uh, generally held belief that one tyrant is better than a thousand. Right. Mm-hmm. So anarchy is always the worst form of tyranny, the tyranny of many than it is of of the one. Uh, I'm not sure everyone thinks that anymore, but maybe we'll eventually no, find but, out you know, why you, people used to think that. <laughs> you take out Saddam Hussein and you get ISIS, right? So I mean, yes, sort of exactly. like, there's a case yeah. study right there. Well, this, this is, I can't remember who said this, but it, I think it was actually about the economy, but the economy was better when it was run by classicists because they would read things like this. Same with foreign policy. You know, before, before, they, before you had all these specialists, it was better uh, when, they, when they would just read these sorts of texts and then figure out Absolutely. the rest of it later. Yeah. Um, well, this is, this is great. I mean, I, th- I encourage everybody to read, um, read Johnny's book. Uh, it's, again, a very good introduction to kind of help orient you and int- introduce the authors and the periods. Um, but I think these texts, for, for you know, reasons we're kind of tugging on in this uh, discussion, will challenge people. Um, but also, Johnny, as you, you kind of drew out, there, there is even practical application and lessons for regular people, you know, us regular folks that aren't, uh, that we don't have the new codes at our disposal. Sure. Um, so our, our considerably low, lower stake decisions that we have before us. Um, but what are, what are your general kind of hopes for the book? I wanted to ask you um, in terms of its, its reception and use uh, from people mm-hmm. um, as it, it, you said, it comes out in February, February 20th, February 20th right? 20th. So, yeah. so somewhat I'm- soon. I mean, my, yeah, my, my hope is that, you know, just like you put Cicero's on duties in your breast pocket, you know, when Thomas More walked out the door, I'm hoping that we can get, you know, some senators carrying this book around or some, you know, people in the White House, you know, referencing it, not only for speeches, but also just for, you know, general advice on how do you either rule or how do you advise someone who is 
entrusted with authority. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of very practical, you know, for example, in Han Fei's The Art of Persuasion, he's talking about how basically like, how do you give advice to a ruler, you know, and, and um, sometimes you need to coat that advice with, you know, some sugar, you know, to take get them to take their medicine. But he really goes through the whole psychology of how leaders take advice, you know, and why, um, you know, some leaders, if it's one person who a person they like, that's presenting the advice, they're going to receive it wholeheartedly. If it's someone they dislike, mm. it doesn't matter if it's good advice or bad advice, they're going to reject it. So there's a whole kind of a strategy that you need to take when you're trying to advise a, a leader. And, and many of the, the um, people that wrote the text in the book that were counselors mm. to kings ended up getting killed in pretty gruesome ways. <laughs> so it's, um, it's a dangerous job. Um, but, you know, today, I mean, my, in a, maybe at a more basic level, you know, I hope that people that are leaders in their, you know, their families and their churches and their schools and their businesses, uh, you know, there's little pieces of life advice that if you just want to be a more virtuous person or you want to be better in your career and you don't know how to do it, you can look to this book for very practical advice, you know? And I mean, one, I mean, here's just like one, a couple like very simple examples. You know, Cicero talks about how you should spend most of your time uh, at the things that you improving the things you're good at instead of trying to fix your mistakes, which seems mm -hmm. counterintuitive, you know, but he basically says, mm -hmm. look, you spend uh, an hour a day on, on your strengths, you're, you're going to see 10 X growth in that area. You know, you want to find it mm -hmm. your niche as quickly as possible and really maximize mm -hmm. that. Whereas if you spend an hour a day in your spare time on something you're bad at, you know, you're only going to see marginal growth and improvement. So as a young person trying to make it in your career, you should very quickly through your different work responsibilities, find that, that one thing that you're good at, hone in on it and really try to do that all the time and have other people do things you're not, they're, you're not so good mm -hmm. at. So like, that's one practical piece of advice. The second one, which is a little bit cliche, but it's all throughout the tradition is that, um, you know, the idea of faking it till you make it is actually mm -hmm. very true. Cicero, uh, calls it a <laughs> shortcut to greatness, you know, start acting like the person that you want to become. And pretty <laughs> soon you'll, you'll not only yeah. convince yourself that you're that person, but that in part you'll you'll persuade others that you're you're that person. And mm. then maybe the last thing is, mm. you know, you rise to the level of the people that you associate with and spend time with, you know, for good or for ill. So really finding that not only mentors, but also, you know, peers and friends that are virtuous, that are excellent, that will help you to rise mm. to their level much more quickly than trying to do it on your own. Yeah. Some of the the when I first I think I was still in law school, but there was a uh, a partner at a law firm in Philadelphia, and the best ad advice he ever gave me was, uh, he's like, get up every morning and he'd look in the mirror and say, I can, I can fake this one more day. <laughs> there he's like, you know, and he's like, and then, you know, <laughs> that's what he did. And that's, I got there. But um, yeah, there's a lot of truth. And th these things, um, you know, I think we, going back to kind of our, our kind of operating assumptions about politics and even jurisprudence. I mean, you see this a lot in even on the right with our expectations about how judging should work. It's, it's to totally like extract the human element and you expect the algorithm to just run and pump out the appropriate mm -hmm. results. Well, it turns out that's not going super well. And maybe it would be better if we did just accept and appreciate you're dealing with people. This is how they're persuaded. This is how they'll act. Um, someone has to make the call. Someone mm -hmm. at the end of the day, um, you know, my pet peeve is people saying we're governed by a constitution. I'm like, that, that doesn't make any sense. You're governed by 
men, someone has to make the decision. We do have certain agreed upon parameters to that rule, but you're not governed by a document or a piece of paper. You're governed by other people. Um, and the same thing with, you know, in our courts. Um, and, and if you, you know, hang around some of those environments, you figure that out pretty quickly anyway, that it's, it is, you are dealing with personalities. So I think that, I mean, that's another aspect of these texts that I just appreciate is they just, they don't try to fight this, this very human element. They just lean into it and try to figure mm-hmm. it out. Yeah. And that, I think you could explore, uh, you know, a whole, a whole separate podcast could be had on the, the rule of law and, you know, how it actually mm-hmm. works and how it functions and what's the, the, the role of these institutions and laws versus the, the individuals that are ultimately making the decisions behind them. But yeah, I would say as on the whole, um, and this is not to the exclude. you obviously need good, good laws, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's a chief role of a function of a ruler. Um, but the, I would say this genre in particular is focused more on the, the great leader as an individual. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's actually a, um, a worthwhile corrective to where much of the conservative movement has been um, just, I think, more in the clouds, focused on abstract mm-hmm. institutions, how things ought to work in theory, but not really mm-hmm. how do they function in practice and what is really the nature of our regime today in 2024. Um, as opposed mm-hmm. to what it might be if you're just studying it on paper. Yeah, you see in a lot of uh, like older political texts, they, um, you know, the bottom line is basically if you have good rulers, things are going to be great. You have, if you have bad ones, they're going to be terrible. And that's like yeah, how, yeah. where a lot of those guys will end. And, the, and even if we've, you know, there's certain um, things in our polity that we've introduced that I think mitigate against many evils. But at the end of the day, there's still, that's still, a factor for us. And it still is true. Even if people want to kind of deny it or, or ignore it, that it's, it's not just interchangeable slots and it doesn't matter what your personnel is and what kind of people they are, that you do need virtuous leaders and virtuous citizens if it's going to, you know, work. Um, and that that's, you know, I think that's something that, that ISI majors on, but a lot of other conservative Inc institutions sure. don't, um, you know, it's, it's white papers about the, about the policy issues as if that, you know, as long as we have the good ideas, everything will go fine. Yeah. It's, and it's not, it's laughable if you take that logic and move it to other domains, right? If you, if you mm-hmm. were to say like the quarter, you know, the quarterback of the Houston Texan, like CJ Strat, like it's great that he's a devout Christian, right. And that he's mm-hmm. in, in his, probably his moral discipline and restraint. Yeah. He's probably not going to be out getting drunk or probably not going to be mm-hmm doing all these other things in his personal life that would inhibit his ability on the field. But at the same time, right, you have to, you still have to be, I don't know, six foot, you know, four and Mm -hmm. 225 pounds. And like, you have to, it takes more than just being a Christian, you know, of generally Mm -hmm. sound moral character and, you know, studying the plays that you're going to run right Mm -hmm. on the field. Like you actually have another, a bunch of other qualities that really make for a Mm -hmm. good and effective quarterback. And similarly, in the world of politics, like, yeah, it's it is not enough to be good to understand how this to understand how the system works. Right. You actually have to be yeah, a dynamic leader, you know, operating in a context where there's so many variables that you're having to navigate. Um, mm-hmm. For whatever reason, we're stuck in this notion that if you're just good, if you're just ethical, that somehow qualifies you for presidential leadership. And I don't think that's mm-hmm. true at all. Mm hmm. Yeah. 
Well, Johnny, this has I mean, been great um, to to discuss this genre again. I was, I was excited when I saw you know what the book was going to be, uh, just because I've I've read not I have not read all the uh, the texts you've included before, but I've read some of them. So I was I was eager to see what else was included. Um, you know, just to just to do the typical thing and criticize you for for not doing what I want you to do. Um, there, there, there was no Protestants included until George Washington in the book. We jumped right from 1516 to 1796, and uh, I would have just wanted to see Luther's letter to the Christian nobility, um, or maybe, maybe my favorite of this genre is is James the First Basilicum Doran, mm-hmm. which is to see a monarch writing to his son in this genre rather than you know, another advisor. So I'd recommend those two uh, to people as well. I think they fit with this as a, as a supplement, as Timon's supplement to Johnny's book. Uh, we, we can, we can make ISI include a special PDF online for that. Um, but th- those are, you know, those are other, other texts that, uh, that people can read, but this, this is, as, as you said, and, and to my mind, also the only collection of these types of texts I've seen published. So I would, encourage people to grab this it's going to make it easier than reading awful facsimiles online or you know wherever else you got to kind of pull these texts together this is really convenient and helpful um so i appreciate you doing that for this kind of yeoman's work for everybody of course yeah and i always i I do appreciate recommendations from uh my my protestant friends so just because it wasn't included in this (laughs) book doesn't mean it won't be included in the next ISI conference. Well, that, uh, so that's right. Feel free to send those. Well, I heard that I heard there's a second volume coming out of just only Protestant texts, okay. and you were just saving those <laughs> for later. Two, yeah. Volume two, yeah. The part two. Um, Josh, got any parting thoughts for for our guest Johnny, and uh, we we can wrap this up for today. Yeah, it, it, thank you for writing this book. I mean, the, I'm I'm actually um, I'm going to try to work through it with my with my son, um, and uh, you know, I think that. Um, we're at an interesting point in our politics and in our polity. We defied gravity for so long in a lot of ways and, and didn't mm-hmm. have, you know, perhaps didn't have a necessity to go back to history and learn uh, from, you know, great men in tough times. And so, you know, I think that these, these lessons are very prescient for us right now. And I would encourage um, people who are listening to us to, you know, go get a copy of this book. Um, I think it's going to be, uh, for yourself personally, and and those of you who have um, you know children who are who are going to be coming up in a world that probably is a bit different than the one that we came up in, um, this is going to be a very good intellectual uh, foundation of, of hopefully hopefully formative mm-hmm. for for virtue and wisdom uh, for years to come. So thank you, Johnny, and thanks yeah. for coming on today. Thanks for having me, guys. And again, the the book for everybody is Gateway to Statesmanship. Um, I think I neglected to mention earlier, it's got a very nice forward from Larry Arn. Um, this, and, you know, use, I was glad also to see you use the word statesmanship instead of leadership, which is a very Hillsdalian thing to do. Sure. So it's predictable, but it's, but it's much better. And it does get um, at the, the qualities in view rather than just these, you know, kind of cookie cutter leadership books. This is, this is much more worth your time hmm. um, and gives you something to sink your teeth into and we'll, we'll hopefully be formative as, as Josh was kind of talking about. So um, encourage everybody to get it. It comes out uh, February 20th. I assume it's available for pre-order, Johnny, on, it is on, on Amazon. Amazon. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Excellent. And uh, follow Johnny um, and his work at ISI. You're on, you're on Twitter, right? I, I am mean, on I Twitter. That's... Yep. At Johnny Good. Burke. Okay. 
Excellent. So follow Johnny. That way you can uh, not only see how the, the book's doing and see his other interviews, but um, also follow along with what ISI is doing. They're doing lots of lots of really interesting and, and very needed stuff. Um, so we'll, we'll wrap this up for today then. Thank you for listening. Um, again, uh, subscribe to the podcast as well as the uh, our articles on the site at AmericanReformer.org and follow us at AmReformer on Twitter or X. Um, And until next time, have a good one. You can find American Reformer on the Internet at www.americanreformer.org or on x.com, formerly Twitter, at amreformer. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please consider supporting us today by making a tax-deductible donation through our secure online donation portal at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org.